I hope that you have listened to the words of that song as we sung it together. Friends, it will captivate your heart with the truth of the gospel. It is one of my all-time favorite, all-time favorite hymns. I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 12. If I can find my place there. We come now to the very end of this chapter. We're going to be reading verses 41 through 44. And we will see what great word God has for us on this Father's Day from it. Before we read together, let's pray. Oh God, I have no idea... why you have chosen me and set me aside for glory. Why you would send Jesus, your son, to bear my sin on the cross. I I don't have an answer for that. But God, I'm thankful today that you've done it. And so I pray that not because of me and my goodness and my righteousness, but because of Christ and his righteous life and his death on the cross, when I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see truth from your word, that you would bless us with the ministry of your Holy Spirit to teach us and give us wisdom and understanding from the scriptures. Lord, show us Jesus in it today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 41. We read, And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said, He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had and all that she had to live on. So Jesus has been in Jerusalem during what is the last week of his life. It is the season and the time of the celebration of Passover in Jerusalem. And these Jews from all over the world have gathered in this city to make their sacrifices and to celebrate this atonement of sin. And so the the atoning Lamb of God, Jesus, the, the, the once for all sacrifice for sin, makes his way into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then he begins to encounter the criticism of the religious leaders. They are aware of his ministry. They have seen the miracles that he has performed. They know of the following that has now come upon him and is following around with him. Those that are listening to and being led by him. They know of his message that he claims to be the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, this man Jesus, this carpenter's son, this dude who rode into town on a donkey. He claims to be the king of God's people, the Son and the Lord of David, 
the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 to bring about the demise of the evil one and the reconciliation of sinners with God. The religious leaders are aware of who this man claims to be and the message that he is giving because of what he claims to be able to do, and they're not, they're not happy about it. And so as Jesus has now been making these He exits Jerusalem in the evening and then makes these day trips back into Jerusalem. And especially we've seen him every day in the temple. Again, today he will be in the temple doing something and watching things that are taking place there. But as he's made these trips back into Jerusalem and especially into the temple, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians and the Sadducees, these powerful men, especially in a religious scene, they are now very interested in Jesus. They send delegations to him to trap him in his speech, to trip him up, to prove him to be a false prophet, to to prove him to be unorthodox, to prove him to be not divine, not God, not the Messiah. They have all of these ulterior motives and these wicked intentions. And so these controversial interactions between the leaders and Jesus have been taking place. And Jesus has dealt with them splendidly that they are of no challenge for Jesus. They, they can give their best effort at thwarting his ministry and his authority, and, and he will have none of it. And what we've seen is, is not only has he dealt beautifully and elegantly in answering their questions, in doing so, he has brought about their just condemnation. He has condemned their lifestyle, their hypocrisy. And as I articulated last week, if you were with us, in the passage immediately preceding this, he condemns their deficient view of God, especially as it pertains to himself incarnated in the flesh, the man Jesus. They don't know who he is. They misunderstand the prophecies of the Messiah that was coming, and they simply cannot believe in this Jesus to be who he is and as he claims to be. So they have this deficient view of God that leads to a deficient religion. It leads to a deficient gospel that will not save them. And Jesus, in answering their questions and elegantly and beautifully dealing with them, he is condemning their deficient views of the gospel. He is showing them to be hypocrites. However... You know, for, for those of us who are reading these stories and learning and listening to Jesus sort of drop the hammer on these religious people. You know, we're religious people. We are. I mean, all of you are here. <laughs> That's at least to some degree religious. You may have wrong motives, but, but all of us are religious people. And I think we should all be very interested in the question, well, man, if these religious leaders, if these powerful religious men, if these ones who are most devoted to the faith and to their, to their laws and to their system, if they're a bunch of hypocrites, what, what, is, what do I have to do? What does trusting in him look like? What, what, does, what does a life that doesn't have a deficient view of God, but has a sufficient understanding of God and his working through Christ in the gospel, what does a life of one who believes and understands that look like? The good news, friends, is Jesus gives us in this story at the very end of all of these controversial interactions, not just teachings, he gives us a picture, an example of what a a sufficient and right understanding of God looks like, belief and trust in him, 
and then what the life that flows from it does. So, so that this widow and her couple of pennies stands in stark contrast to the hypocritical religiosity and law-keeping, the good-doing of all of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees that he has been dealing with up to this point. So, what I want us to do this morning then is to ask a few questions. Three, what does this widow teach us about giving? What does she teach us about believing? And what does she teach us about living? So what does she teach us about giving? Because while I think this passage is really not about money, we will get there, and I'll tell you that right up front. I think that is not the main point of this passage. I was talking with one of you, one of my friends this week, about what the main point of this passage is. It encouraged my heart greatly to know that someone was studying and reading ahead for our sermons. I like that. But we were talking about that, that the, point of this, the point of this story is not really fully about money. And that's, that, that's where most people tend to go. We're going to go there because I think it starts with money. And I do think that there are some things we must learn about giving and about the nature of giving from this lady. So, so what does it teach us? Well, let's just examine the situation into which she was given. We're not sure exactly what the day was, probably Tuesday or Wednesday of this last week of Jesus' life, but he makes his way back into Jerusalem and especially back into the temple. And it says that he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. There would have been multiple offering boxes. So now Jesus, he's been out in the outer courts of the temple. The temple was a huge, ornate, impressive structure. It was the center of all of life in Jerusalem. And Jesus was out in the exterior courts is where all of the... uh, interaction with the Pharisees that we've been reading about, that's where that has taken place. And it is now that Jesus has made his way into the next level in the temple, into the court of the women, where there would have been these trumpet-shaped offering boxes. These, I mean, seems kind of odd to us. But out in the temple, that's where people gave their money to the temple and to God and made their offerings and their financial sacrifices that they were going to give. They brought these things into the temple and they put them into these trumpets. Now, the interesting thing about these trumpets is they made them where there would be a lot of clanging and banging when you put your money in. They weren't dropping dollars and checks in, okay? They were dropping coins, it's what he's going to speak about. The, the woman brings a couple of pennies. We'll, we'll talk about exactly what she brings. We've already seen spoken of in this passage about a denarius. So, so these were all coins. You know, when, when, the, when the disciples brought to Jesus a denarius that had the, the inscription of Caesar on it, it was a coin. And wanted to know, do we tithe this or do we pay taxes to Caesar? Right? And Jesus answers their question. But so there were these coins so that when you walked up to the you know, to, to the trumpets, to the offering boxes, if you were just dropping a little bit in, it dink. <laughs> sort of, you know, sort of melodramatic, right? Very unimpressive. But, it, but if you were walking up bringing this ginormous offering and dumping it, you know, like ding, 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 here it goes into the, into the trumpets. Everybody would have known. Think about what we read last time. Go back just a few verses. In verse 38, he said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who like to be seen 
who like to be recognized. They want everybody to know what they've done. And so they set up even a system in their giving so that when they bring these large amounts of money, everybody will know how much they've given. And everybody can be utterly impressed with their faithfulness and their willingness to give so much back to God. And it is into that situation that this poor widow, poor in in financial terms, destitute. Widows would have been the largest not the largest, one of the largest groups of the totally destitute and impoverished in their culture. Most people worked a day to live a day. And and men were responsible to provide for their wives and for their children. And it was very rare that widows who stayed at home and took care of the family, that they had any education and any trade and were really capable on any level of going out and procuring financial stability for themselves. And so it was often that when men died, especially at an early age, when, when women were left widows, that, that, that the provider in their life was gone. And, and they didn't have big savings accounts and bank accounts. I'm sure there were probably rare occasions where some really wealthy men left women and families behind with probably plenty to take care of themselves. But that was not the norm. One of the things about Jesus' teaching and also in the disciples, you can even go to the book of Acts, is that caring for the widows becomes a paramount part of the ministry of Christians. Why? To care for those that can't care for themselves. They're they're unable to do so. And, And so this poor, destitute widow who would have found herself at the bottom of society, she comes into the temple and she brings these two small coins. Depending on your translation, it would read very differently than mine. It probably reads two mites which would have been a lepton, okay, which, which is the equivalent of one 128th of a denarius. One 128th of a single day's pay. That's what she brought. And so that's why so many translations say a cent or a penny. You may have a, I think a King James or a New King James, it may even say, Mark references there, a quadrant's. That's for the sake and the benefit of his Roman audience that would be reading and listening and understanding because that was what? The smallest coinage in the Roman Empire. So so the point is not the exact thing that she brought. The point is that she brought essentially two of the least significant, the least valuable, at least monetarily speaking, two of the smallest amounts that she could possibly have brought. They may not even wait enough to ding when they hit the bottom of the trumpet. And it's in amongst all these religious hypocrites, all these men who have their white robes and who stand in the marketplaces making their greetings and who sit at the best places of honor at the feasts. It is among these men who are pouring these large amounts and everybody being so impressed with them that this widow walks up to the trumpet and she puts in these two completely and utterly insignificant coins. The point is that she put in almost nothing. And relative to the amounts that were given by others, it was very little. In fact, relative to the amount that was needed for use in the temple, she contributed almost nothing. The temple, the religious Leaders, the priests, the services that would have gone on there, they would not have noticed. 
They would not have felt the impact of her giving these two coins or her not giving these two coins. They would have made no substantial difference in the life or the ministries of the temple whatsoever. But Jesus commends this woman's giving, does she not? And says that she has given more than all of those rich people put together. Why? Because while relative to what they gave and relative to what was needed, it was very little. But relative to what she had for survival, relative to what God had given her, it was a tremendous amount. Guys, it was everything. She wasn't going to eat that night because she gave her two mites. She gave everything that she had. Very quickly, three things that I think we learn about giving from this lady. First, it teaches us that we must give quietly. Do not miss the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, listen to these words. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you do a charitable deed, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say unto you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. One of the things this story is teaching us is that Jesus is sitting in the synagogue. He is on the side watching them give. Folks, Jesus is watching us give. Not just financially, as we will see, but in all areas of our life. And one of the things that we must be prepared to do is to give so that he alone sees and he alone will reward. I, I will tell you, and, 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 and I'm not condemning, I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not telling you that the Bible teaches this, but because of this teaching... Here and in Matthew 6, it's one of the reasons that we don't pass an offering plate, but that you can give as you feel led in the quiet of the offering box that's out there. Now, the Lord has blessed that tremendously. I'm not telling you, the churches I have pastored in have passed offering plates. I can't tell you that we'll never pass one here. It began because we didn't have, off, we didn't have ushers to pass it. So that it was practically helpful. But it was also a concern that I had. And Dad and I talked about this and prayed about this at great length. At the end of the day, the point is, we must be careful that we are not giving to make a show of our giving. Because if we do, then the show that is made and the praise we receive will be the only praise that we get. We must be able to understand that as Jesus sat on the side and watched all of these people give in the synagogue, and he commends and blesses and honors the giving of the widow who did it in a way that did not bring any attention to herself, so too does Jesus sit on the side and watch the giving of the lives of his people, and he will honor in secret those that give quietly. Secondly, she teaches us to give proportionately. Jesus commends the widow's giving, not because of the dollar amount she gave, but because of its proportion to what he had given to her. Do you see the difference? The, the point of the passage, at least as it relates to giving, is not to make a normative declaration about how God's people are to give. 
at least in terms of dollar amounts. It is to tell us how to give quietly and proportionately. That for those men who were giving all this money, it was of very little sacrifice to them because they had been given tremendous amounts of money. Listen, it's easy to give a thousand, which may seem like a lot to me and other people, if you've been blessed with a million. But if you've only got fifteen hundred, a thousand is a lot. So part of the the nature of our giving must be not only that we're careful to give quietly, but that we don't simply give willy-nilly, especially when it comes, comes to money, but also in every aspect of our life. Listen, the commandments of the Scripture is, especially in the New Testament, that we must be careful to sit down and to pray about and think about and set aside a portion of what God has given us in proportion to His blessing. As we feel led... Most Christians, friends, think, oh, I tithe. I give a tenth. Have you ever thought about where the teaching of a tithe is in the New Testament? The only time a tithe is ever spoken of in the New Testament, which means a tenth, is in relation to the hypocritical giving of the Pharisees and the scribes. So be careful. Jesus never encourages his people to give a tithe, a tenth, in the literal sense. He teaches them to give everything. I would support a tenth. I think a tenth of your finances and of your family and of your time and of your life is probably the place to begin, but I do not think it is the place to end. The New Testament doesn't give us a nice, neat category so that we can make a certain calculation. It doesn't teach us that if we'll just give X amount of dollars that we'll be okay. It teaches us that we must examine what God has given us and give a large proportion out of gratitude and joy for the gospel. Friends, and I don't just mean financially what God has given us. God gave us his son. So if you don't have any money, you owe him everything. We must give quietly, we must give proportionately, and finally, as I have alluded to, we must give sacrificially. She gave everything. So this is very interesting. The proportion was 100%. 100% this lady gave. You're thinking, man, it's something for a preacher to be standing up encouraging people to give everything, isn't it? Be patient. Does Jesus ask this of us? Am I to be encouraging you to give all of your finances? No. Yes and no. No, the point of the passage is not to require 100% of our livelihood to be given in order that God be pleased with our giving. The scriptures never, ever, ever recommend in any way that we give proportionately to the number, 100% the way that she gave. In fact, it encourages us to the opposite. It can be seen what she did, though it's not the point. It can be seen as unwise. What was she going to eat with? What was she going to live on? She is now going to be totally dependent upon the charity and the generosity of other people. Friends, that's not even a... That's not the point of the passage, and I'm going to try to help us see that. But, but from the perspective of, is God asking us to give all of our money to the church and to him? The answer is no, that's not even biblical. Think about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul is rebuking those who are 
given to idleness and are not working to support themselves so that they are totally dependent upon the generosity and charity of other people. Remember what Paul says? He says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So if they turned around and gave it all to the church, they wouldn't have anything to live on. That's not the point. He goes on and he says that if one will not work, let him not eat. Right? So we're not to be, we're not to be unwise and irresponsible in our giving. Financial responsibility is a part of how we honor God with what he gives us. God is not honored by the person who gives very little with respect to what he has. Nor is he honored by the one that hoards everything for himself that God has given him. It makes no difference which side you err on. If you give to the point that you can't support yourself, or if you give nothing because you're hoarding everything for yourself out of what God's given to you, you're not carefully and responsibly thinking about how I can give proportionately to what God has given to me and my family. And God's not going to be honored by either end of the spectrum. The point is that we can honor God by faithfully working hard, saving well, and using God's blessings wisely in a way that honors him. God is not here commending this lady's wisdom or lack thereof. It's not about the amount that she gave. I think the focus is not necessarily on the amount, but that the amount, but that Jesus is commending to us the sacrifice that was required to give as she did. And that is the question that I have for you. When you think about the proportionality of your giving, is it sacrificial? Does it cost you anything to give the way that you give? It's more than a tithe. It's more than a simple calculation. To give the way that she did, this woman lost everything. It cost her something. I think that's the point. We must give quietly so as not to be given the praise of men. We must give proportionately, carefully thinking about how to be wise and giving with respect to what God has blessed us with. But it must be sacrificial. Friends, if if to give of your money or of your time doesn't cost you anything, it probably, it, it doesn't honor God. Friends, it's easy to give a little when you have a lot. And what I know is that as Americans in 2014, those of us who have the least have been blessed with far more material blessing than almost any people of any culture in all of recorded history. Yet we give almost nothing. Yet we give almost nothing. So it does teach us something about, it does teach us something about Giving, but it also teaches us something about believing. I would argue that her great financial sacrifice pointed to her great faith and trust in God. See, how does one give sacrificially like this? Well, it takes utter belief that God will provide for me. That God will not forsake me. That God has promised to give to me the things that I need to have. 
It flows out of true love for God and joy and gratitude for what God has done for us. I think this lady understood how blessed she was in her destitute estate because of all of the great things that God had given to her and done for her. And I think that when as God's people, when we encounter the truth of the gospel, we are overcome with the realities of God God has given of himself that we might be saved. That while we were dead in sin, while we could not save ourselves, while we could never be good enough to get to him, he came to us and reconciled us and stood in our place on the cross and bore the penalty for us. Listen, when you understand that reality and you truly believe the gospel, giving sacrificially to one who is given so sacrificially to you is easy. Friends, here's what I'm saying. If we really believe that God has gone so far as to give us Jesus already, then we will have all the hope and confidence in the world that he will continue to give us in the future. So that giving it up is no problem. Giving up our money, if he gave us Jesus, giving, he, can give me, he can give me money and give me time, he can give me family, he can give me friends, he can give me whatever it is that I need. So I think that her... I think that her faith and her sacrificial giving points to her genuine belief in God. And doesn't this stand in stark contrast to the deficient belief of God from those people who have just come before? The hypocrites who give differently, by whom God is not honored, and by their giving God is not honored. It's because of their deficient belief in God. They've never encountered the gospel. They're giving so that he would be pleased. They're not giving because he's given Christ and, and is already pleased with them. So it teaches us about believing. If you want to give like she did, believe the gospel. Be changed by the gospel. Come into a relationship with God by faith. Then you will experience unmerited grace. You have your sins penalty paid and you will be in communion with God. And that is the experience that teaches us to trust God. For if he will send Jesus, money is no problem. So it teaches us about believing. But our belief informs our life, does it not? All of you believe in chairs. I know that because you're sitting in them. When we genuinely believe something, it becomes evident in the way that we act. We do according to our beliefs, not the other way around. So many people think that our, that, that, that our you know, they get it mixed up. The things that we believe, doctrinally speaking, dictate the way that we live. The way that we live does not determine what we believe. It's the other way around. And I think that that's what you see in this woman, that her true belief informed her life. A genuine belief in God and trust in him and gratitude for what he has done led to a quiet, proportional, sacrificial, extreme giving of gratitude to him. Here's what I mean. This lady never would have looked at how little she gave. She, she could have said, as we often say, what difference can my little bit make anyway? It's not going to change anything about the temple or the church or the services or ministries here. If we really believed in God like she did, we would never say, surely God doesn't expect me to give that much. <laughs> surely, surely God doesn't want that much of my time. Surely he doesn't expect me to give of my free time. That's the only day off of the week I have. That's the only time I have with my family. That's the only time I have for sports or for outdoors or for recreation. Surely God's not going to require that I give of this money that I need to eat and to pay bills with. 
She didn't ask that, did she? No, because she believed in God. She knew what God had done for her. And if we genuinely believed the gospel, I believe we would never ask those questions either. We would never be found saying, surely God doesn't expect me to give like that. We would give everything to him. So the answer to the question a moment ago, is God teaching us from this passage that we have to give everything? No, financially. It's not a normative declaration about how much to give. But yes, yes, the teaching of this passage is that we must give him our all. Our life. Because at the end of the day, that's what she was giving him. A few questions. How much of our family time do we give to Jesus? How much of our time off do we give to Christ and his kingdom? How much of our work time and life is given to Christ? How much of our intellect and our thinking and our academic pursuits, how much of that time do we give to Jesus, to learning about his words and his ministry? How much of your money do you give to Jesus? How much of your effort, the work that you do, How much of it do you give to build up the kingdom of God? Friends, if most of us legalistically carved out a tenth, a tithe of our lives for God, the way that we do legalistically out of our finances, first, it would be far more than we currently give to him. Second, it still would be not nearly enough. If we set aside a tenth, of our family and our life and our time and our free time and our work and our effort and our intellect, if we set aside a tenth of everything we have legalistically, like we do out of our finances, A, it would be far more than we do now, but B, God still would not be honored by it. Why? Because God demands everything. God has given you your life and he demands and requires that for his people they give it up for him. Those who seek to gain their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for me and my sake and my kingdom, they will find it. The question is, would you give him everything today? All of your life, everything that you have being used responsibly for the building of the kingdom, for the worship of the king of the kingdom, for the advancement of his gospel, for the reconciliation of sinners. Do you give of your life and your family and your time and your children so that God is glorified? Or like the Pharisees and the hypocrites? Is it so that you would be made much of? So that you would be glorified? I'm going to close with an illustration from a popular sitcom these days, The Big Bang Theory. That may be surprising to you. I don't commend it in any way. That's not my point. So don't misunderstand. And please don't think bad of me for having some knowledge of this. For having some knowledge of this popular TV show. But, but let me give you this illustration because I think it's going to be helpful for us here and, and, and maybe a bit humorous. One of the main characters in the show is a guy named Sheldon. He's a quirky, nerdy, eccentric, and obsessive genius. He has an eidetic memory. He doesn't forget anything. He knows absolutely everything. And he's happy to tell you everything that he knows. But he is OCD to the max. And everything in his life must go exactly as he thinks it must go or everything is off kilter. He has very few friends in the world because of his eccentricities and because of his uh, obsessive tendencies. But one of them, one of his very small group of intimate friends is Howard. Some of the only people in his life that love him for who he is and accept him as he is is a guy named Howard. And he is 
offended Howard and hurt Howard terribly in one of the episodes. And Howard is unwilling to forgive him. Sheldon has gone around with Howard over the course of the episode. He goes around trying to earn his forgiveness, buying him things, coming up with scientific reasonings as to why he must forgive him. The problem is that Howard knows that Sheldon's attempts have showed no real contrition. And so Howard is totally unwilling to forgive Sheldon. And Sheldon is pretty, pretty interested in this forgiveness, as I said, because he doesn't have very many friends in life that genuinely care for him. So, so here's how the dialogue goes. Listen, Sheldon comes in to work one day at the university where they work, and he's holding a large bag. And he walks up to the table in the lunchroom where Howard and three, two, two, Two of the other friends that Sheldon has, there's a main group of four, two of the other guys plus Howard, they're all sitting together. Howard is still very angry at Sheldon, and Sheldon presents him with a bag, a gift. Howard says, Sheldon, you can't fix this with gifts. Sheldon responds, nevertheless, I have hurt you, and whether you forgive me or not, I want you to have this. Howard pulls out a couch cushion. Now, let me tell you about this cushion. Sheldon, one of his eccentricities is that in their apartment, on their couch, that is his spot. It is the only place that is cool in the uh, summer and warm in the winter, that is the perfect angle to the TV, and also that doesn't make him turn his head too far to engage in conversation with his friends, lest he become a social pariah. It is his spot. No one sits in his spot. And everything in his world falls apart if someone messes with his spot. Howard pulls out a couch cushion and being unimpressed asks, you're giving me a couch cushion. Sheldon says, no, the cushion is merely symbolic. I'm giving you my spot on the couch. Howard looks up at Sheldon in complete disbelief and he says, but you love that spot. Sheldon responds, no, I love my mother. My feelings for my spot are much greater. It is the singular location in space around which revolves my entire universe. And it's yours. And of course, Howard forgives him. I'm sure that's an imperfect illustration on so many levels. And I don't want to use it inappropriately, but I think it does show us that substantial, sacrificial giving is from the heart. And it is easily given to the one that we truly love and are overcome with gratitude for. See, friends, I think the reason we don't give sacrificially like that to to God is because we don't really love him. Because we don't really believe in the gospel. If we knew what great lengths and depths of love God had gone to for us in Christ, giving him the center of our universe would be easy. My prayer this morning is first that we would believe in Jesus that we would understand the gospel, that we would be moved by love and compassion and gratitude for what God has done for us. And secondly, that as we are full of gospel joy and gratitude, that it would overflow in quiet, sacrificial, proportionate giving of all of our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. And I pray that 
we would remember that where our treasure is, our heart is also. And so, Father, I pray that our treasure would be in you. That we would be willing and able to bring our the center of our universe. That, that we would bring our most precious possessions and give them to you. Because, because you love us and because of what you've done for us in Christ. I, I pray that, that our experience of the gospel and of Jesus would be so profound and life-changing that, that we would so come to understand the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf and for us that giving like this to you would be easy. Lord, help us to believe the gospel and help us to trust you. And may that belief be found in a life of giving. Lord, help us today to give you everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.